So let's go ahead and start. Like I said, tonight we're going to be in Job chapter 12. I'm going to do a quick recap of uh, Job chapter 11. Uh, And I know when I say a quick recap, no one ever believes a pastor, but I'll do my best to make it quick. Uh, In chapter 11, we saw the following. Uh, Job had three friends, remember, that came to visit him. The one thing they did right is they were silent for the first seven days, and they started to speak. And they accused Job of sin, and that's why he was suffering. The three friends were Zophar, Bildad, and Eliphaz. In the last chapter, Zophar spoke for the first time. He accused Job, just as Eliphaz and Bildad had, that Job's suffering was due to his sin uh, against God and that God was actually disciplining him. Uh, Zophar accused Job of making long speeches, that he was very long-winded, and that he was trying to speak these long-winded speeches in order to distract them from pointing out his sin. As if he talked longer, they would forget about his sin. That's what he accused Job of in the last chapter. Job, um, he, they said Job was mocking God. Zophar said, you're mocking God. And he said that he needed to rebuke Job um, because he was waiting on God to speak to Job. But he said, hey, look, if God's not going to speak to Job and God's not going to rebuke you, I'm going to speak on behalf of God. Um, now, the thing was, Zophar was wrong, right? Job was not being disciplined because of his sin. Uh, He was suffering because Satan had asked for Job to be tested by God. First, Satan asked God, hey, the only reason he praises you is because you've never tested him. You've never taken anything from him. All you've done is give him wealth. You've given him 10 children, and you've blessed everything he touches. So as Pastor Dave always says, and as I say, a faith that has not been tested right is a faith that cannot be trusted. Job fell into sin, though. He did when he accused God of being unjust. Okay, because Job is in a bitter place. He's sitting in an ash heap. He's scraping his skin off from the sores that he has. And he's in so much pain, he can't sleep. It says he tosses and he turns at night. And everyone he knows, kids later in the chapters are actually spitting on him in the middle of the street. So he's been basically excommunicated uh, from everyone he used to love and who used to put him in high esteem. Uh, We read this in Proverbs. In a multitude of, of words, sin is not lacking. But he who restrains his lip is wise. In James we read, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, but slow to speak and slow to wrath. That was the issue with both of these men. They kept talking, right? Zophar and his friends wouldn't stop talking. They kept talking in a multitude of words. Sin is not lacking. And that's what happened. They fell into sin by accusing Job of something he didn't do and misrepresenting what God was doing. God had not attacked Job. It was Satan. And then Job is accusing God. You know, it's one thing to be accuser of the brethren, but to be accuser of God as being unjust, um, it was just wrong, and he had fallen into sin, again, by his speeches and his questions towards God. So when God did not speak to rebuke Job, like I said, Zophar decided to do it for him. Zophar says, God has given you less punishment than your sin deserves. Job, you're suffering, but you know what? You should be even suffering even greater for the sin that you have done. Um, after all, you're mocking God and you said God is unjust. He should make you suffer even worse. That was Zophar's heart and that should never be our heart towards people that are hurting, amen? We need to listen, we need to pray for them and we need to encourage them. Uh, but this is where Zophar was coming from. Zophar was actually the harshest of the three friends as well um, in his heart stature towards Job uh, by telling him that, that he should suffer even worse. Zophar asked Job, Can you know deep things about God in that chapter? He tells Job, God is great. God is too great to know. Can you know the limits of God? So in our study, uh, the last time I was up here, uh, we can't know everything about God, but that doesn't mean we can't know anything about God. Amen? 
So can we know some of the limits of God? In our study, we saw um, he's chosen to reveal deep things to us. It actually says that in the Bible. But understanding deep things about God starts with our love for God. And we read this in 1 Corinthians 2.9. But as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has, here it is, revealed them to us through what? His spirit. For the spirit searches all things. Yes, even the deep things of God. So we can know deep things about God. It starts with that love for God and then it starts with the Holy Spirit being inside of us. Zophar also told Job, we cannot know the limits of God. We can never fully know the limits of God, right? He is great. He's beyond our understanding, the Bible says. But can we know some of the limits of God? Yeah, I put forward to you, there are things that we can know about God and his limits that he's chosen to reveal to us, such as God cannot lie. It's impossible for God to lie. It says this in Titus 1-2, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. So we can know some of the limits that God puts on himself. God does not change. Also, we read in Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen. And aren't we glad that he is because his promises are true and we can trust in him. Again, we can't know everything about God, but we can know, it doesn't mean we can't know anything about God. Zophar told Job, God sees deceitful men and wickedness. That God's not accountable to us, we're accountable to him. God will punish wickedness. This is a true statement that uh, Zophar made. But Zophar's understanding of judgment was wrong. Zophar assumed that all wickedness is punished on earth immediately by God. But we know that's not true, and so did Job. Because later in chapter 21, Job pleads his case that many wicked people go unpunished on earth. And we do know this. We can just look around us and see this. In fact, it seems that Job makes the statement that wicked people even make out better than the righteous. And how many of us have seen that as well when we just look around us? Uh, Job makes the, the statement, the wicked, they grow old and live long lives. They have many generations of descendants. They obtain great power. They obtain great wealth. And Job will make a statement in chapter 12 as well, which we're about to read, about robbers and thieves not only getting away with things, but it seems that God allows them to. Zophar tells Job in the last chapter that though he can't see Job's sin, God knows his sin and he needs to repent. He then tells Job that he's basically dumb and has no wisdom. He will be wise, basically Zophar says, you'll be wise when a donkey turns into man. Okay, Zophar was mean. Our knowledge of God is like a tool. And I said this the last time I I taught from chapter 11. We can use the tool of God and what we know about God to either build people up or we can tear people down with it. And I, I likened it to this, like a two by four. It can be used in many different ways to drive a nail or a stake into something. It can even jack up a car, right? You can put it under a car to hold the, the bugs that a woodpecker will eat. Woodpeckers actually, that's why they peck on the wood. They actually eat the bugs that are inside of the wood. Uh, to frame a house for shelter, right? Can be carved into a beautiful sculpture and given to a man as a gift. It can be a sculpture of us even. Or it can be used to hit someone over the head to hurt them. And that's what Zophar was doing at this point in chapter 11. In his speech to Job, he was hitting him over the head with his knowledge of what he thought God was like. So if you want to have an effective ministry, I'll say this, deliver the truth, but always do it in love and with compassion. 
Love God, love people, don't be mean to people, be good, kind, fruits of the Spirit, gentle and loving, using the fruits of the Spirit. Guys, that's ministry. That's ministering to people. Focus on those things. Everything else hangs on it like it says in the Bible. The law and all the prophets hang on. Love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. Amen? Follow that. That's a truth. Zophar closes the chapter telling Job that he needs to repent. And if he repents, God will heal him physically. The suffering will stop. He will remember it no more. That if he repents, he will return to a blessed life of prosperity. That God will protect him, will protect his whole family from anyone who wants to hurt them. And everyone will like Job. And they will all desire Job's favor. It's the prosperity gospel. And it's heretical. If he doesn't repent, he is wicked, Zophar tells him, and he will die at the hands of God. Zophar preached the prosperity gospel, which I said is heretical. And we know it's heretical because Paul himself asked God to heal him from his ailment three times, and God didn't. We read in 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in my flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord. So he pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me, from him. And he said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, most, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches. And this is you know, great and powerful when Paul is saying this. He takes pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, God is made strong and Christ is made strong. And then we're made strong. Amen. And many who believe in this false doctrine, doctrine, when they are not healed or they're not wealthy or they don't get what they prayed for or asked for, then they believe what? That God is not real, right? Or that they just don't have enough faith. And then they end up walking away from God. And that's why it's a heretical doctrine. It destroys people's faith. And it's not biblical and it's not true. But this is where Zophar was coming from. He was urging him to go ahead and repent for some of these reasons. So this brings us to chapter 12. Um, some of you have outlines here. We're not going to be able to, that's another thing on the live stream. Uh, because we're in a makeshift uh, kind of live stream and in a different part of the building, uh, you're not going to see the outline online. But I'll go ahead and read it to you. So... Point one, we must have knowledge and wisdom of scripture and be able to defend our faith when others tell us about our God or ask us about our God. We must pour out our godly knowledge and wisdom into the lives of others. This wisdom can only come from a close relationship, guys, with Jesus and his word, amen? It can only come from that. So we'll start uh, in verse 1. We'll read verses 1 through 3. If you're at home, we're in Job chapter 12. Job chapter 12, uh, verse 1 through 3, because I just realized you don't have that on your screen, or maybe you do. I don't know. I don't think you do. And uh, I'll go ahead and read verse 1. Then Job answered and said, so now what's happening is he's answering Zophar. Everything we just went through, that was Zophar's speech. Job's now got a rebuttal. Then Job answered Zophar and said, no doubt you are the people, and wisdom will die with you. But I have understanding as well as you. I'm not inferior to you. Indeed, who does not know such things as these? So Job, first of all, even with everything he's been through, 
I mean, just the pain and suffering, he still has sarcasm. That's what amazes me. So here he is being sarcastic. He says, all you geniuses, right? You know everything. You're the smartest people on earth. And when you guys die, no one else will have wisdom. Oh, yeah, I know that for sure. So he's being sarcastic. Um, We'll all be helpless dummies once you guys are gone. That's kind of the way I look at it. They're know-it-alls, and that's what he's saying. You guys are know-it-alls. You just seem to know everything about God. So here we have what we're about to see is an intellectual discourse between men uh, and their understanding of God. I don't know about the ladies, but I know men like to do that. Sometimes we'll sit there and debate for hours, right, and just go back and forth. And, and we do that sometimes with Scripture as well. We'll sit there for hours talking about the Lord going back and forth. Um, and that's what's going to happen right now. The first two chapters are explaining the story and how it's unwinding in Job's life and what's happening. You have 36 chapters, 36 of this back and forth between um, Job's friends that came to visit him and his suffering and Job. And then God speaks in two of the chapters at the end, two or three, and then you have the last chapter that closes. So um, unfortunately, there are those who don't know anything about God, and then there are those who know something about God, and, there are the, and then there are those who think they know something about God, but they don't. Unbeliever, unbelievers are usually the, 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 uh, the latter. They think they know something about God, but they really don't. And you guys probably have experienced that, right? Where unbelievers will say, oh, I know about God. Let me tell you how your God is. Let me tell you what I think you should be doing, right? Uh, I'll give you an example of that. Here's something uh, that was said to me by an unbeliever years ago, and you guys may have heard this same thing. He said, hey, Doug, in Genesis chapter four, Eve gave birth to Cain, right? And I said, yeah, okay. Then Abel, right? And then Cain killed Abel, right? And I said, okay, yeah. Then Cain, he went on to the land of Nod and got his wife, right? Well, if they were the only children of God and then Cain kills Abel and he leaves, where'd the wife come from? There was no one else born. Where'd his wife come from, Doug? Explain that to me if your Bible's true. Now, you see, we have to look at Scripture and we have to know Scripture. We have to be able to defend our faith. You see, after Abel had died, Adam had Seth, if you guys remember, in Genesis. Adam was 130 years old, the Bible says, when he had Seth. Adam actually lived another 800 years after um, King uh, killed Abel and then Seth was born. That gave Adam, if you think about it, at 130 years old when he had Seth, uh, which, um, which Eve said, oh, it's basically to replace my son I lost. 130 years... You figure he could have had kids for 115 years prior, right, to Cain and Abel. Now, Adam, in that amount of time, if you do the math, and I'm not a mathematician, and uh, I know you guys know that about me, (laughs) um, he could have had about 80 children by that time when Cain killed Abel. Uh, The Bible never says how old, if you guys remember, Cain and Abel were at the time of Abel's murder. They could have been 50 years old by this time, and there could have been many other descendants, many other kids that Adam had had. Adam most likely had many children after them and daughters, and they had children. So when Cain is vanished to the land of Nod and he goes off to Nod, um, we don't even know if he brought his wife and he already had a family with him. The Bible doesn't say. So why does the Bible focus on these two characters? Well, we know why it mentions Seth. And we know why it mentions Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel because they're a primary part of the story of the one brother killing the other brother, right? Because he didn't bring the proper offering before God. So they're vital to the story. So that's why the Bible mentions those too. There are many more examples, but you've got to be able to explain this to people, right? You've got to know your Bible and you've got to know how to defend your faith. 
And that's what Job's doing in this place. He's defending his position. And there are many examples, but I will save them for another time. In verse 3, Job says, Indeed, who does not know such things as these? We must know our scripture, like I said, be able to defend our faith. And this is from 1 Peter 3.15, where it talks about always be ready to defend our faith. And as Christians, we have to do this. But sanctify the Lord your God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Guys, so we got to be ready to answer these questions with the hope that's in us. So that's what unbelievers do, right? They think they know God, but they actually don't, but they're going to tell us about our God. And then there's those who don't know God at all, and they'll tell you, I don't really know God, and I'm not sure... And that's when I go, oh man, let me tell you about God. It's like the low-hanging fruit, right? They're going to give their lives and, and to the Lord and confess their faith and come to salvation. But guys, we should be doing this for the ones who don't know anything about God and want to know it, the ones who want to challenge us about God, and we need to tell them who God really is. And then we should also want ironing, sharpening iron, right? That when we come to church, we are talking about God with one of those who, from, with those who do know something about God. So all three of them are a blessed opportunity to talk about the Lord. Amen? So then there's believers, and some have a lot of knowledge about God, right? They believe in the Lord, they love the Lord, and they have tons of knowledge. And they want to debate biblical history, tradition, uh, culture, and theology. I was one of those guys. I was actually a Calvinist. I know many of you might know, know this, and many of you don't. I was full of knowledge, uh, I could talk about theology and doctrine for hours everywhere I went. But everywhere I went, I had a debate because I was so full of knowledge, right? But that's all I wanted to do is debate and win an argument instead of win people to Christ. And that's what we're here to do. Remember that. It's not about an argument. It's not about being right about theology. It's about putting Jesus in people. Church is not about putting people in seats. It's about putting Jesus in people, amen? Because that's what we always need to point them to. The argument, I could win that a million times, but are they going to be saved? Are they going to be in heaven with me? No. So it's always about Jesus and salvation, guys, everywhere we go. Um, So I had a guy who was a mentor of mine in Christ. He's actually now a senior pastor at another church. And he challenged me when I was younger and I was full of this knowledge and I knew so much about Calvinism and Arminianism. and, And what he told me one day He said to me, I was into apologetics, right? Being ready to defend your faith, right? Uh, And he said to me, hey, Doug, you have so much knowledge about Christ. You have so much knowledge about God. I said, hey, man, I've really been into apologetics and let me show you this scripture and let me tell you what God showed me the other day. But you know what he said to me? And it crushed me. He said, you have all this knowledge about God, but what are you actually doing with it? Are you pouring into people's life? Who are you discipling? Now, this was a guy who I had watched He would go around his neighborhood, he was the youth pastor at the time, and he would pick up all the youth kids, as many as he could find, kids who had no father, kids living with their grandparents, kids of unbelievers, and he would pick them up and he would bring them to church. So I couldn't really have a rebuttal towards him because I saw him doing ministry constantly, and he did pour into people's lives. But I remember I got in the car that night, or that day after, it was after church, he said this to me at church, it was in a midweek, and we're driving home, and and I said, you're not going to believe what, you know, Pastor, what's his name, said to me. You're not going to believe what, he, and I told my wife, and I was mad. How dare he tell me that, you know, what am I doing for God? And she goes, you know what, you seem so mad about what he said. I said, yeah, I am. She goes, is it true? Why are you so mad? Is it true? 
Are you pouring into people's lives with the knowledge? Or are you just sitting there debating and talking about how much you know about God? And you know what? That humbled me. I sat there and I was kind of mad. I was still mad and I was trying to argue with my wife. But what she said was true. So, so what are you guys doing with your knowledge of God? Are you pouring it into others? Who is discipling you and who are you discipling? I would ask you that. You got to think about that. Maybe go to your prayer closet. Say, what am I doing with the knowledge of God? Who's discipling? Who's my mentor? Do I have one? Do I identify? Have I asked someone to mentor me? Am I mentoring someone? Am I asking people, hey, do you want to have a Bible study? Let me teach you about my God. Those are amazing opportunities. So point number one, we must have knowledge and wisdom of scripture and be able to defend our faith when others tell us about our God or ask us about our God. We must pour our godly knowledge and wisdom into the lives of others. This wisdom can only come from a close relationship, guys, with Jesus Christ and his word. Amen? If you stay in Jesus Christ in his word and you stay close to him and um, you're willing and available, I can't tell you, he will bring people into your life. And let me say this, you know children's ministry? It's the hardest ministry to get people to serve in. It is so hard. I bet you Tim could have a line of people who want to sing in the worship group, a line out the door, right? But getting people to serve, and here's the the amazing thing about the kids, and I've always said this, is parents, if you want to disciple someone, they're bringing their kids to us. We don't even have to go anywhere. They're like, here, disciple my kid. Here, teach them about Jesus. Here, I mean, what better opportunity to disciple than children's ministry? I want to encourage you. Look, my wife leads a children's ministry. If you're interested and you want to disciple someone, we got a spot for you to disciple someone. Point number two, when we are mocked and persecuted, we are being used by God and being effective for God. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you. Be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. So again, great is our reward in heaven when we're being persecuted. And we're going to read uh, verses 4 through 6. I am one mocked by his friends, Job says, who called on God, and he answered him, the just and the blameless who is ridiculed. A lamp is despised in the thought of one who is at ease. It is made ready for those whose feet slip. The tents of robbers prosper, And those who provoke God are secure in what God provides by his hand. If you remember earlier, I mentioned, uh, he's going to mention robbers. And it's right there in verse 6. The tents of robbers prosper. And those who provoke God are secure in what God provides by his his own hand. So Job's questioning, in a way, God's sovereignty, that everything has to go through God's hands, but why does he allow it? So in verse 4, you see Job had a personal relationship with God, it says. Who called on God, it says in verse 4. He had a personal relationship with God his whole life. Job would call upon God, it says in that verse, and God would what? God would answer. Remember who Job was, not in Job's own eyes, but in God's perception. If you remember in chapter one, those of you who have read it, God said of Job to Satan, there is no one like him on earth. He's blameless and upright. That's who Job was. That wasn't his own perception. That was in heaven. That was God's perception of this man. Wouldn't be blessed if he said that about us. Look at Tim. Look at Doug. Look at Brett. He's blameless and upright. Amen. But now the blameless and upright, Job said, he is mocked by his friends. How many of us have been mocked by our friends and persecuted for our faith? I know I have. In fact, if it's good to be persecuted 
for living a godly life, guys. It's good. When you're persecuted, it's a good sign in your walk with the Lord. 2 Timothy 3.12 says this. 2 Timothy 3.12. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Trials and persecution, it's not if they're going to happen. You've heard this before. It's just when. It's just when. Matthew 5.10-12 says this. Blessed, Jesus says this, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven, guys, for they persecuted the prophets who were there, who were before you. So guys, if we're being persecuted, you're doing something right. Not like you're doing something wrong. God uses the persecuted. He uses them for his glory. So uh, just a really quick story. I, I, was, I share my faith a lot. And uh, we had a, a relative. We used to go to uh, family parties with my wife on my wife's side of the family. And this relative, um, he was an ex-biker. And uh, we would barbecue carne asada and have these big parties. And I would, I would tell him about Christ, or at least I would try to. And one day he would always reject it and he would get kind of, uh, you could say, colorful with his language towards me and towards God. One day he told me this. He said, look, you keep, do, you keep it up. I promise I'm going to knock you out. I'm telling you right now, you want to get beat up, keep telling me about Jesus. I'm just telling you, I'm warning you. At that point, I knew I was throwing pearl before swine and I stopped sharing with him. Now, I've been threatened to be beat up three times in my life for sharing God. I don't know if you guys have. Um, uh, but uh, I recommend it, uh, being uh, threatened uh, to get beat up by sharing the word of God, because God uses it mightily. And um, guys, live a faith that everybody can see and hear. Everybody you know should know you're a Christian. But what happened with this guy is recently, uh, he got COVID-19. He also lost his eyesight from a prior illness. And so he lives alone. And he's had a lot of broken relationships with family. And I called them the other day because they had asked me to call. And I shared Christ with them. There's the same man who wanted to beat me up and knock me out. And he was receptive and he gave his life to the Lord about a week and a half ago, two weeks ago. And I've been having a Bible study with him every night since. And we're going through the book of John. And he's eager for my call. He waits for my call. He says, hey, look, I live in the darkness, is what he told me. I live in the darkness. And when you call, I can't wait to hear the Bible. And the bottom line is, when we were reading through John, it says what? That Jesus is what? The light in the darkness. And I said, now you have light in your darkness. And no, and I pray that God fills that house and he fills the rooms with your presence. And he told me, I used to be scared of the dark, but I'm not scared of the dark anymore. Guys, this is the same man who said, I will beat you up. You keep telling me. But see, when people get to a place of brokenness, and that's why we have to love them. That's why we don't get mad when they reject. That's why we count it all joy when they persecute us and mock us and revile us because there will be a time and they'll remember you and you'll be the one who'll be the light in their lives. Amen? Amen. So in that verse, verse five, he says, a lamp is despised in the thought of one who is at ease. It is made ready for those whose feet slip. Here's what Job is saying. This scripture is actually interpreted many different ways and I'll leave it up to you. Um, you know, like some scripture, there's multiple ways to interpret it. Every pastor is a little bit different. Um, Job is saying this, I am a light, this lamp, but you despise me. Why? Because you're not going through the trouble I'm going through. 
You're not experiencing the suffering that I'm experiencing. So it's easy for you to despise my life. Because remember, Job was a righteous man. Some people always argue, to, a lot of pastors have looked at it in different ways. Were they truly concerned with Job's salvation? And that's why they kept telling him to repent and accusing him of things he didn't do and hitting him while he's down? Or had they seen this holier than thou man? Because remember, in these cultures, a lot of times it was the righteous works you did that made you holy. It was all about works. Did they see him from a period of time and say, oh, see, Job was always holy. In fact, they call him a hypocrite at one time because they say, hey, you were the one who used to preach to other people who were suffering to be full of joy, to have peace in God, but now you're the one complaining. Well, so maybe they were coming after this lamp or this light. And Job is kind of saying here at the end of that verse when he said, it is made ready for those whose feet slip. I think what Job is saying is, um, if you were in trouble, you would want my help. And you would want me to be a light in your life. Because when your feet slip, that's when you need the lamp, right? When you need to see where you're stepping. So you guys, we can be a light illuminating in the darkness in people's lives. And they may not want that light at that time because it illuminates their sin, amen? It brings that darkness to light. Light reveals what's in the darkness. In fact, they might, might even want to see us fall. Like maybe Zophar wanted to see Job just fall. But when people slip into a place of brokenness, like I shared that story with you about that family member, when they're in that place of brokenness, we're their lamp in their darkness. Amen? And then in verse 6, Zophar viewed God in this way. And we talked about it earlier. I mentioned it. Do good, God blesses you. Do wicked, God punishes you. But see, Joe's refuting their view. This is kind of how they all think, all three of the friends. If it's true, Job says, then why do robbers prosper and those who provoke God are secure in what God provides by his own hand? He's saying, if what you're saying is true, that the wicked get punished and the good get blessed, then why do robbers seem to be blessed and be secure? Why does God allow it, right? And Job was right. He even says God allows it and he was right. Gives the prosper with his own hand. Gives it with his own will. God is in control of everything. Amen? But we also know about God right in the day of judgment. They won't get away with it. The Psalm of Asaph, which I believe is Psalm 72 or 73. Can't believe I forgot it. But Asaph talked about that. That there will be a judgment. The great Psalm, by the way. The Psalm of Asaph, if you ever want to read it. An amazing Psalm. So Job, at this point, as he's trying to figure out his relationship with God, that it's not just about, hey, he just blesses everyone who worships him and serves him, but we're going to go through trials. Job's figuring it out. He had to let go of his prior understanding of God, but what he couldn't do was give up on God. And that's what we can never do. Even when we come to Forks in the Road where we're wondering about our relationship with God and God's character, never give up on God because he'll never give up on you unless you completely reject him your whole life. Amen? And uh, point number two, so was when we are mocked, guys, and persecuted, we are being used by God and being effective for God. So don't think that mocking and persecution is something you did. God is using you in other people's lives. Amen? Uh, And blessed are you, it's part of my outline, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you. Be exceedingly glad and great is your reward in heaven for that persecution. Point number three. God's eternal Godhead are seen in the creation by the things that are made. But God is much greater than his creation. Always worship Jesus, guys, not the created. God speaks to us 
of his existence daily just observe the evidence around you. You can see the glory of God everywhere around you, amen? <clears throat> it's apparent. It's undeniable, but yet they still deny it. Verses uh, 7 through 10. But now ask the beasts, Job says, and they will teach you, and the birds of the air, and they will tell you, Zophar, or speak to the earth, and it will teach you, and the fish of the sea will explain to you, Zophar. Who among all these doesn't know that the hand of the Lord has done this? Again, God's sovereignty has allowed everything. In whose hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind? So in verse 9, he says, Who among all these doesn't know what you guys have already told me? You've told me nothing new. You're not helping me. I know the Lord does this. I know God had to allow my suffering. So far, we all know this. It's apparent that even the animals know that God is in control and holds everything in his hand and gives breath to all living creatures. God is in total control, and I know that. That's what Job's saying. But he also says, and I find this very interesting, the earth will teach us. Will teach us what, guys? That what's happening to Job is not that simple. Again, he, remember he was talking about robbers? He's talking about, hey, look around me. What you're saying doesn't seem to add up. See, Zophar can have theories. We can all have a theory about something. He can have his theory about wicked men and good men and how some are blessed and then some are punished. But when the evidence around us, guys, doesn't add up, our theories are what? They're just a good theory. Theory of evolution. Really? I've never seen a monkey turn into a man and I've never seen a fish walk out of the water like a man. Never. When I see that, then your theory might have some evidence behind it. But until that happens, no. And that's what they hide behind, right? Just going into evolution. They say, well, you know what? You can't empirically believe God is real and that faith is real and that uh, your God existed, right? And they, you, you hide behind that. Everything you say, well, God's just God. He could do anything. Well, they hide. You know who their God is, right? The five billion years, the million years. Why? Because none of us were here then. We can never say it didn't happen. Never. It's impossible. A billion years. Well, that's, that's done. You're right. A billion years. Find me someone who's been around a billion years. Okay. Then we'll have a, 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 a debate. So it's just a theory until there's evidence. And that's what Job's saying. You have a theory about the wicked and the good, but I don't see it. But here's what we do know about the earth. The earth and animals do speak to us, as Job mentioned. They speak to us about how mighty and incomprehensible God is and how beyond our understanding he is. So here's something I've always wondered. You guys may have wondered this too. Cute animals. Cute animals die all the time. I got little rabbits in my backyard. They're the cutest little thing, and snakes eat them in the back canyon, right? Why do they get eaten by such ugly things? I, I hate snakes, by the way. Can't stand them. Um, the ocean is so powerful. Pastor Tim knows this. I go out surf. Uh, he goes surfing, and I go bodyboarding. He always says, you're inferior to me because I can stand up, and you can't. But um, when we're out in the ocean, the ocean is powerful. And you know what it makes me feel like? It makes me feel small, fragile, and weak. Does it ever do that when those waves hit you? And they, if you've ever surfed or you've ever bodyboarded and that wave takes you face first into the sand, it makes me realize the power of God. Lightning and thunder, which God will actually question Job about. In later chapters, he'll ask, actually ask him, do you know where the white lightning starts and where it ends? And no one knows that. So here's the thing. The sound of the power of thunder. And I watch and I listen in awe of God's majesty. Stars that show me the beauty of my existence and God's existence. But I realize how small I am in the universe. And when I see the stars, I realize how far I can actually go and it's not very far and how much I don't know what else is out there. 
species of fish, right, that they still discover to bring me wonder and things that I still haven't seen that I know they're still going to pull out of the ocean, right? They're always finding these new creatures, amazing-looking creatures that live in an amazing way, and they're at the depths of the ocean that we didn't even know those depths even existed until we have enough technology to get down that far. The Earth, guys, here's the thing. The Earth spins at 1,000 miles. I don't know if you knew this. The Earth spins at 1,000 miles an hour on its axis, and we are actually spinning around a ball of fire right now at 67,000 miles per hour, and we don't fly off. Okay? To me, that amazes me. Okay? I'm in an amazement of God and what he's able to do that when I see him, like Pastor Dave says, I won't have any questions. Well, actually, I think I'll have a lot of questions. Like, how did we stay on the earth when we were spinning around the sun at that fast, right? So I think I will have some questions, but they won't be a question about his majesty, who he is. It'll just be things that I stood in awe of on earth. Amen? That's his creation, but I'll tell you this. Much greater than his creation is who? Is the creator. Amen? Romans 1.20 through 21 tells us this. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. That's us being without excuse as we stand in awe of his creation. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Neither were they thankful, but became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. Guys, the earth, the sun, everything I just mentioned speaks of the glory of God and his majesty, that we will stand before him without excuse whether he existed or not, and Jesus and the Godhead were who they said they were, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Like Job said, creation does speak to us how great creation is, but how much greater, remember that is, the creator who created it all, amen? Look to him always. So this was really interesting. I'm, I'm, I heard another pastor kind of go through this, and I thought, man, that's great. So you know what else is amazing? The peanut. Who doesn't like peanuts, right? At home, do you like peanuts? I love peanut butter, uh, you know, Cajun peanuts, coconut peanuts, roasted peanuts, kind of like Forrest Gump, right? I love peanuts. Peanuts are amazing. So the story of George Washington Carver, some of you may know who he was. I'm going to tell you a little bit about him. He was born the son of slaves. Dr. Carver became one of the most notable chemists of his day. Working in the laboratory at uh, Tuskegee Institute, that he affectionately called God's little workshop. So he was a Christian. He developed over 300 innovative uses, uses for the peanut, as well as breakthroughs in the use of sweet potatoes, pecans, and soybeans. The boldness, the boldness of Dr. Carver's faith can be observed in the account of his address to the U.S. House Ways and Means Committee in Washington, D.C. in 1921. So... He was test, giving testimony uh, before Congress. Initially, he was given only 10 minutes to speak, but the committee became so enthralled uh, that the chairman of the committee said, George, go ahead, brother. You time is unlimited. He spoke for an hour and 45 minutes expounding on the potential of the peanut. At the end of his address, the chairman asked him this at the end of his peanut testimony asked him how he had learned all these things about the peanut. And you know what George Carver said? From an old book. And the chairman said, what book? Carver replied, can you guys guess which book? He said, the Bible. And the chairman inquired, does the Bible tell us about peanuts? And George Carver said, no, sir, but it tells us about the God who made the peanut. And I asked him to show me what to do with the peanut, and he did. <laughs> Amen? 
Seek God and ask for answers, amen? And he'll show us amazing things. He'll show us amazing things about creation, like Job was talking about. Oh, how much greater is the creator, guys, in the creation? May we always worship the creator and never the creation. One more quote from Carver I'm going to read to you. I thought it was, he, it was amazing. I guess he has an, an autobiography. I think he wrote it, or it might be a biography, but it might be uh, worth looking into. He said this, My purpose alone <clears throat> must be God's purpose, to increase the welfare and the happiness of his people. Nature will not permit a vacuum. It will be filled with something. So what he's saying is, nature and the world alone will not allow us to be filled with something. We'll either be filled with the world, or we'll be filled with Jesus. Amen? And it's our job to bring Jesus to the people, amen? That's why I said everyone should know you're a Christian, whether it's at work, whether it's your kids, or your family, whether it's your relatives, whether, wherever you are at any celebration, they should know you're a Christian. And then he said, it will be filled with something. Human need is really a great spiritual vacuum which God seeks to fill. Remember, we were born for worship. That's why we worship things. That's why sometimes we worship things of the world, whether it be movie stars, whether it be music, uh, whether it be material things. We were made to worship of our original purpose. Remember, God made us to worship who? Him. Amen? So he says, great spiritual vacuum which God seeks to fill. With one hand in the hand of, I love this, with one hand in the hand of fellow man in need and the other hand in the hand of Christ. He could get across the vacuum and I became his agent. He's saying I'm a mediator between man and God. I bring men into the presence of God, amen? And that's what I was talking about. Be about Jesus. Bring men into the presence of God. Then the passage, and then he says this after he says, I became an agent. Then the passage, I can do all things through Christ which strengthened me, came to have real meaning as I worked on projects which fulfilled a real human need. Forces were working through me, which amazed me. I would often go to sleep with an apparently insoluble problem, so an insolvable problem, and when I woke up, the answer was there. He says at the very end, he closes this statement with, why then should we believe in Christ? Why then we who believe in Christ Why should we be surprised at what God can do with a willing man in a laboratory? The key word, and I underline that, guys, is willing. Are you willing? Are you willing to to go into the promised land? Are you willing to take all that God has for you? He has amazing things for you. Like I said, teaching the children's ministry, that's where I started. I, I give God, I mean, I get to do this. I get to stand up here. Not everyone can be a pastor, but be willing and available. Pastors always say this, the, the, the number one gift someone can have is being available and willing. Pastor Tim said this. He said at the men's ministry, I'd use it. Be fat. Right, Timmy? Be fat. Faithful, available, and teachable and see what God does in your life. Faithful, available, teachable. Keep those close to your heart and see what God does. So in point three was God's eternal Godhead are seen in creation by the things that are made. But God is much greater than his creation. Always worship Jesus, not what he has created. God speaks to us of his existence daily. Just observe the evidence all around you. Amen. Point four, knowledge is when you know how to or what you should do, wrong from right. Godly wisdom is when you actually do it, the knowledge that you have. Godly wisdom comes from, a, from more time, and how do we get godly wisdom? comes from more time spent in God's presence, his word, prayer and fellowship and godly counsel from other godly Christians, guys. Okay, that's wisdom. So let's read verses 11 through 13. Does not the ear test words and the mouth taste its food? 
Wisdom is with the aged men, and with length of days understanding. With him are wisdom and strength. He has counsel and understanding. Job is saying here, um, I hear what you're saying so far. It doesn't taste right, though. It doesn't sound right. You're actually not listening to me. I'm telling you I didn't sin. I'm telling you I'm trying to figure out what God's doing. I'm telling you the natural world around you doesn't add up to what you're saying. Guys, we know when something doesn't taste right, right? When you go to eat something and it's rotten, like have you guys ever drank rotten milk, right? You know immediately when it hits your tongue, whoa, and you spit it out immediately, right? And you hope you're not going to get sick. That's what Job's telling him. What you're telling me ain't right. What you're telling me don't add up. Job is either saying, Zophar, you're younger than me when he talks about age. Wisdom is with aged men. Now, here's the thing. Do you necessarily become wiser when you, does everyone become wiser when they get older? In fact, some actually, I could argue, become more stubborn and less wise as they get older. And I understand they're getting older and a lot of things, you know, might bother them. It's hard getting old. But at the same time, right, um, yeah, it doesn't mean that because someone can be way more spiritually mature than another just because they spent more time with God than the other person. That's usually why. So he, but he's entertaining that. And so far, you're younger than me and I am older with wisdom. That wisdom comes with age. So I think Job's saying, hey, look, I know what I'm talking about. You're actually younger than me. I've been around longer. I've experienced more. Wisdom is different though. Uh, worldly wisdom does, does us no good, guys in our relationship with God and our relationship with people. Job is referring here to godly wisdom, amen? We're all on the same page. But godly wisdom comes from where? It, I mentioned it earlier in the, uh, the point. It comes from more time spent in the presence of God, in God's word, in prayer, in fellowship, and counsel from other godly Christians, ironing, sharpening iron. Wisdom and knowledge are two different things, and I'm gonna explain them very quickly. Knowledge is when you know um, how to, or what you should do, and some, some would say when you know right from wrong. Wisdom, guys, is when you actually do what you have knowledge about. It's when you actually do it, okay? Because if you know right, but you do the opposite, is that wisdom? You do the wrong thing? No. So wisdom is practicing what you already know to be right. Jesus tells us this. He actually tells us what wisdom is in Matthew. Those of you who take notes, Matthew seven twenty four through 26. I'll read it to you. Jesus says, therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and what and does them, I will liken him to who? To a wise man who built his house on a rock. We all know that, right? Maybe from Sunday school. And the other man builds his rock on sand, right? When the storm comes, it blows away the other house and it falls. Then he says in verse 26, but everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like what? A fool, a foolish man who built his house on sand. Jesus says, hey, look, you can hear my word, but you actually have to put an act. You can hear what I told you is right and what's wrong, but you have to do what's right. And when you do that, your house is on solid ground in that verse. It's built on a rock. Well, who's the rock? The rock is Christ. Jesus Christ, it says in the Bible, in the Old Testament, he's the cornerstone, right? And that stone is a fence, is an offense to those who don't believe. But everything is built on those cornerstones. You don't have cornerstones when you build a foundation, you have nothing. So guys, Christ must be our cornerstone and our foundation. But when we don't do what he tells us, Jesus says we're fools and our house is unstable. Again, wisdom is not knowing what Jesus says, but actually doing what Christ says. So I would ask you this, and the men in the room and men at home, are you leading your houses? Are you doing what Jesus says? Are you setting the example for your wives, for your children, for your nieces, for your nephews, whoever it may be? Are you working hard? 
Are you reading your Bible daily? Are you governing your home? Meaning that you have a set of rules for your children or anyone who's under your roof. Look, here's the thing. I have rules in my home and my daughter just came back to live with us. My daughter's 23 years old and, and we have rules. You come to church. That, that's a rule in my house. You work. That's a rule in my house. Amen? Um, and we're going to teach my kids the Bible. For me and my house, we will serve the Lord regardless. I love God first, love my wife, then my kids. God always comes first. And my daughter can tell you one time when she was young, I told her she was doing something she shouldn't have and she was really pushing back on us. And I said, hey, look, for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. I love God more than I love you. And that's the hardest thing you can say to a child. But you know what? Because I love God, it's going to make me love you more. And because I love God, I'm going to love my wife more. And because I love God, I'm going to love people more. Amen? So that's, what we, that's in my home. And that should be in all of our homes. Amen? We should do what Jesus tells us to do. Are you praying and doing devotionals with your family? Are you taking them to church consistently, men? Are you coming consistently? Right? James 1, 23 through 20, uh, chapter 1, verse 23 through 25 says this. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in the mirror, for he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of a man he was. But he who looks in that perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. Again, wisdom is not just uh, hearing, but doing. Um, if we come to church on Sunday, but we don't do what Christ asks us to do on Monday through Saturday, what, what do we say? Sunday didn't count. Sunday didn't count. We come to church tonight on Thursday, but then we go live like the world Friday through Saturday before we get back to church on Sunday. Thursday didn't count. Guys, we must take God's word. It must live in our heart. It must be in our actions. Amen? Um, James says in that verse, looks into the perfect law of liberty. So he said, but he who looks in the perfect law of liberty and continues in it. So what's the law of liberty? The law of liberty is the word of God. It's Jesus revealed to us in the New Testament. It's the new law and the new covenant. Under the old law, if you remember, we were condemned. It said we were cursed, right, by that old law. Because all it could do is reveal to us how bad we were and how sinful we were. The new law gives us freedom. It gives us liberty from what? Liberty from sin. Jesus took that upon himself. But it, doesn't, it, but it doesn't give us freedom to sin. You've heard Pastor Dave say that many times, many pastors. It doesn't give us freedom to sin. And then it says, and he who continues in Christ is a doer of the work of God. Guys, we have liberty in Christ. We are not sinless though. But I'll tell you what, when you know Christ, you guys should be sinning a lot less. I should be sinning a lot less than before I knew Christ. Amen? There has to be that change. That's what repent means. Repent means to have a change of mind means to be facing this way, going in this direction, and you stop and you turn around and now you go in that direction. That's the world, that's the devil, and now here's the Holy Spirit and Christ is in this direction. That's what it means. And um, Job says with God, there is counsel and understanding uh, in verse 13. So I've gotten counsel from mature Christians for almost about 15 years now, uh, but godly counsel just like wisdom needs to be put into action, okay? Um, it says this in Proverbs 12, 15. Proverbs 12, 15. 12, 15 for those of you who take notes. The way of the fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. I can't stress this enough. I tell the youth group this all the time, right, youth group who are out there? 
There's nothing like godly wisdom. If I have a major decision in my life of what I'm going to do, um, and I'm on the fence, and I don't know if I'm hearing from God completely, what I do, and I do this a lot. I get counsel a lot. Um, a lot of times it's from Pastor Dave or, or uh, other people who are mature in my life. Um, I'll get three different counsels, and then I'll look at them all, and then I'll make my decision. There's nothing like godly counsel. You want to save yourself a world of pain and making bad decisions? Speak to God first, pray without ceasing, and then go and ask mature Christians who are as mature as you or more mature what you think you should do and keep you out of a lot of trouble, Christians. Uh, Point four, knowledge is when you know how to or what you should do. Uh, Godly wisdom is when you do it. I thought I already went there. Oh, I'm sorry, I did. That was me covering the last point. We'll go on to point, that was me covering the point that I mentioned earlier. Point five, God is sovereign. A.W. Tozer said this, God dwells in eternity, but time dwells in God. He has already lived all of our tomorrows as he has lived all of our yesterdays. God is in total control over everything that happens on earth and in the heavens. Jesus, guys, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The reason, um, I'm going to read you something else here before we move on. This last half, and we're going to go pretty quick. Let's see how much time I have. Uh, Yep. 14, verses 14 through 25, this is going to speak of the sovereignty of God, how God is in total control. And this is something that uh, is debated theologically, right, for thousands of years. But I'm going to shed some light on it. A.W. Tozer put it this way, God dwells in eternity, but time dwells in God. He has already lived all of our tomorrows as he has lived all of our yesterdays. This is how God sees time. We see time completely different, right? Well, yesterday was yesterday. I wonder, and I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. God already knows for eternity. That God appears at time's beginning is not too difficult to comprehend, right? But that he appears at the beginning and the end of time simultaneously is not so easy to grasp. Yet it is true. Time is known to us by a succession of events. It is the way we account for consecutive changes in the universe. Changes take place not all at once, but in succession one after another. And it is the relation of after to before that gives us our idea of time, right? What happened and what's going to happen and what's happening now. A.W. said this, we wait for the sun to move from the east to the west or for the hour hand on the clock to move on the face of the clock. But God is not compelled so to wait. For him, everything will happen. Everything that will happen has already happened. He sees everything now that's ever happened and ever will happen. Time is not a concept for God. It's within him. It's our concept. It's our understanding of our lives. So let's read verses 14 through 25. And you'll see what I mean why I explained that, that God sees everything. And we don't fully know, you know, we we can sit here and we can debate it. But the bottom line is God has a permissive will Um, God is in total control in his sovereignty, but God in his sovereignty also gave us free will. And that's a beautiful thing. So it's not that he's in control, that that he's not in control, that we have free will. It's because he's in control, he decided, I'm going to give them free will. I'm in control. I'm going to give them free will. Verse 14, if he breaks a thing down, Job says, it cannot be rebuilt, right? Ask them how that worked out in the Tower of Babel, right? When he confused their languages. They had built up this tower and they said they were going to build their way to the heavens. 
but he confused their language. See, if God doesn't want something built and he wants to break it down, done. Done. Could, could you imagine? That could happen today. We want to go to Mars, right? I'm just kind of thinking about this out loud. We want to go to Mars, right, and this whole SpaceX and everything, and we're going to build a... God doesn't want us to go to Mars. What's to say he couldn't confuse our language again and set SpaceX back another 50, 60 years? Elon Musk would be dead and gone by the time he changed all the languages and none of them communicate with him. Like, why doesn't the rocket take off? I don't know. I can't understand what he's saying, right? So God could do this again. That's what I thought about while I was doing my study. And what this shows is that when something, God tears it down, that man builds and it can't be rebuilt. It shows us God's power over material things. Then in the rest of that verse, it says, if he imprisons a man, there can be no release. Guys, God is not like man, the Bible says. God is impartial. Men are partial, right? So it doesn't matter if you get in trouble and you do something wrong and you go stand before the judge and say, hey, you're going to be sentenced. But then we find out the prosecutor of the guy who committed the crime is his dad and then his grandpa's the judge. They might show some partiality, right? And say, oh, let's just let him off. He's, he's my grandson, right? God is not impartial. When God decides to put you in prison, you're going to be in prison. You're going there. And here's the deal with that. Will people end up going to prison in the end that reject God? Right? It wasn't made for people, but hell. And yeah, I said hell because like I said in the beginning, we teach the whole counsel of God here. I'm not afraid to say that. Hell is a place, right? And people are going there and that's where they'll be permanently in jail because of God's judgment upon mankind. They go there and the saddest thing, they go there forever, eternity. And this is where God shows his power over mankind. And guys, that's why we should always be eager when you meet someone and maybe they don't talk like you. Maybe they don't look like you. Maybe they rub you the wrong way. Maybe they're just mean. Remember, they are an eternal being. C.S. Lewis said, all of us are eternal. We'll either be eternal splendors or eternal horrors. Look at them through Jesus's eye. That man is eternal. That man needs that God-shaped hole filled in his heart. Look at everyone as eternal beings and share the word of God with them. And when you look at people that way, that they're all eternal and they're going to end up eternally, right, with the gnashing of teeth and the separated from God, your heart should change and be like, you know what, I, I need to tell more people about God. You need to care for people, amen? I need to care for people. And then it says in verse 15, if he withholds the waters, then they dry up. If he sends them out, they overwhelm the earth. Just ask Noah about how the waters overwhelm the, the earth, Right? God here shows his power. First was over mankind. Now he's showing his power over what? Nature. Verse 16. With him are strength and prudence. The deceived and the deceiver are his. So here, Job, you don't think Job's standing there and he goes, no, you guys are deceived. You guys are deceived. The deceiver was the devil. And he struck me with this. this now, Job didn't know this, but right, we know. The devil was a deceiver and now these men are deceived. And Job's like, you know what? But God sees the deceiver and the deceived, and God knows my heart. And in the next chapters, he'll actually talk about that he hasn't given hope on God. That he even says at one point in the book of Job, he says that if I go down, and those of you who are in men's ministry, Brett, Tim, and, and, and some of us, right, we know that he actually says, if I go to the grave, I still have hope I'll be vindicated. Because remember, they didn't know there was a heaven. They didn't know where they were going. They thought they went to Sheol, just back into the dirt. But he said, hey, I believe even if I go to the grave, he actually insinuates that he'll be resurrected. It's, it points towards Jesus Christ, right? It's resurrection. He actually says, I believe even if I go to the grave, I'll be resurrected. God will bring me back to life and I'll be vindicated. So Job doesn't lose hope, even though at times in the book, it seems like he does. 
Then he says in verse 16, um, proof, okay, so in this, now he's showing the power over the mind, right? That those can deceive others and others can be deceived, right? God's power over the mind. Then in verse 17, he leads counselors away plundered and makes fools of the judges. God shows his power now over the wise. 18, he loosens the bonds of kings, fools, he, loos, wait, he loosens the bonds of kings and binds their waist with the belt. He leads princes away plundered and overthrows the mighty. Just ask Pharaoh about that when he left them plundered and they died in the Red Sea when they were following the Israelites out, right? God shows his power over the powerful and the rulers as well. Verse 20, he deprives the trusted ones of speech and takes away the discernment of the elders. Now here, God is showing his power over the eloquent of speech, the smooth talkers, those who take advantage of other people because the power right in his tongue. What does it say in the Bible? Uh, the power of the tongue can, give, can do what? Give life or give death, one or the other, right? You can literally talk someone into committing suicide. And people have done that and they've stood trial for that, right? It's despicable, but that's the power in our tongues. But he's saying here, God has power over the eloquent of speech. 21, he pours contempt on princes and disarms the mighty. He uncovers deep things out of darkness and brings the shadow of death to life. So he's saying he conquers death and brings the truth and the way and the life through Christ, right? God has a way, like we said, when you live in darkness, right? Um, you're living in darkness and then you receive the light and the Holy Spirit. What happens? You realize what your darkness was and now you're in the light. Also, we talked about some people have sin and God will show their sin. You will be found out. So I think it has double meaning here. It brings the shadow of death to life. So here he conquers death and brings the truth, the way, and the life through Christ. 23, verse 23. He makes nations great and destroys them. He enlarges nations and guides them. God here shows his power over nations and what? Governments. So this whole thing we're going through here, like I said, this too will pass. But remember, we have the favor of God as believers, right? Church is not going to stop. Ministry is not going to stop okay? And they can't stop us. But right now, they're using it against us. But remember, victory has already been won in Christ. So even though we go through these trials and tribulations, and these are nothing compared to what others go through in other countries, right? We're saying, okay, we can't have more than 10 people here, and we're live streaming, and we're going to try to find somewhere else to worship. There's people right now, right? And we might look back, and we go, oh man, in, in 2020, it was so crazy going to church, right? We could have got COVID, and people could have died, and I'm not downplaying it. People can die, and it's a horrible thing to happen, and I have compassion for those people, but think about the Christians who are like, so you guys might go to church, might catch a virus, might die. Well, you know what? We're in a country where if I go to church tomorrow and they catch me, I'm dead. Like they're going to kill me or I'm going to be in prison the rest of my life in places in the Middle East, right? And where churches are underground. So know this though, God is in control, as he says here, over governments and over nations. He grows nations who bless him. That's why we love the Jewish people, right? He'll bless those who bless the nation of Israel. That's why we have their flag in the sanctuary. That's why we're in this, this sanctuary and we love the Jewish people. Verse 24, he takes away the understanding of the chiefs of the people of the earth. Again, he takes away understanding from the rulers. That's who the chief of the people, right? Our leadership. And makes them wander in pathless wilderness. It makes them wander in a pathless wilderness. When the leaders of, of nations reject God, and God's understanding and wisdom of creation and people, they are wandering in the middle of nowhere in the wilderness. 
The Jews wandered in the middle of nowhere because they were disobedient to God. They wandered in the wilderness. And that's what our leaders are doing right now. They're wandering in the wilderness. And it's not, I'm not talking about code. I'm just talking about all the different laws that they pass, right? Just the name, you know, we could go into it. But they're in opposition to God with a lot of the things they pass in the House and the Senate and our government. You don't want to be in opposition to God. You're like walking in the wilderness. Verse 25, and we'll close with this. They grope in the dark without light, and he makes them stagger like a drunken man. Guys, they have rejected God to the point where God will leave certain people in the dark to remain blind, right? He did that to Pharaoh. Remember, he hardened Pharaoh's heart, but he gave him numerous chances to repent. He gave him numerous chances to be obedient, and he stood in opposition to God. Guys, our leadership right now, they hate church. They hate evangelicals. They hate preachers. They hate the Bible. They hate Christians. And these are not just our leaders. These are people who are in opposition to God, people who just don't want anything to God, but with, to do with God. They hate the Bible. They were just burning Bibles the other day in Portland, Oregon. They're throwing them in the fire with the American flag. They hate Christians. They hate the words Merry Christmas. They hate God bless you, and they hate Jesus. But remember, they don't hate us. They hate what we represent. But remember, in our persecution, count it and be exceedingly joyful about it. They have to live a life doing every, people who are like that have to do a, live a life doing everything possible to reject Jesus and eternal life. If any man ends up separated from God for eternity, you've heard Pastor Dave say this, it's because he knew exactly what he was doing when he rejected God. He did everything possible to reject all the prophets and the apostles and the disciples and us who bring the good news and glad tidings of salvation of the peace in the gospel. Amen? So, I don't have an outline. Um, I was going to do a recap, and I forgot my outline. So, here's what I will say. If you want to know this God, and you're out there on the live stream, and you want to have a relationship with God, and you don't want to end up in jail for eternity, you don't want to end up separated from Jesus, and you want to know this God who shows us his majesty and shows us who he is through all of the universe and through his creation. And you no longer want to worship the creation and have all your treasures on worldly things, things that will pass away, but you want to have your treasures and things that are eternal and you want to know Jesus Christ. We want you to know Jesus Christ. And it says in, in Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and you believe in your heart that the Father raised the Son, Jesus, from the dead, you shall be saved. So if you're out there right now and you want to give your life to the Lord, whether you're watching this live stream later or watching it right now, I want to lead you in that prayer. I want you to give your life to the Lord. May today be the day of salvation. Don't wait. The beginning of this book, Job's 10 children, they all died at once. They didn't know they were going to die that day. The house just fell on them and took their lives like that. Today may be your last day. So may today be the day of salvation. So I want you to pray with me. Lord, I come before your throne. I ask you for forgiveness, Father, for rejecting you for all these years. I ask you to forgive me of my sin, the sin I've committed against you and the sin I've committed against others. And Lord, I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord. And I confess that I know that the Father raised him from the dead and I want to be saved. And I want the Holy Spirit to come into my heart. Say those words and pray those words. And it says, you shall be saved. 
And it says the angels are rejoicing in heaven right now that you have made a confession of faith to give your life to Jesus. And this is just the beginning. And the next step is you need to start reading your Bible. You need to find a good God, Bible teaching church, and you need to be in fellowship. So go to our website, cccalabasas.com. We're going to give you a Bible free of charge. It's a really nice Bible. looks just like this. Um, And we want to send it to you. And on our website also is our phone number. It goes right to our senior pastor's phone, Pastor David Johnston. Call that number. We want to pray with you, and we want, to get you, um, uh, we want to get you into a good Bible teaching church and recommend one. So again, the worship team wants to come on up.